Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast that brings you stories, news and great guests from across the world of wind, brass, marching band and drum corps. My name is Keith Kelly and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode I sit down with band musicians and directors from across the world to talk about their stories, their bands and how they're making an impact on their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom. And now on with the show. Welcome back to the Global Bandroom. So today's episode is actually the last in what I suppose I can call season two of the Global Bandroom. Um, what a great way to finish as well with a conversation with Tim Rainish, um, a genuine legend of the wind band world. But before we get into that interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going to be happening over the summer. Because just because this is the last Global Bandroom podcast for a few months doesn't mean that you won't be getting new shows every week or at least most weeks. Um, next week, I'll be releasing the podcast version of this month's Repertoire Happy Hour, which this month featured Jason Noble, John Lynch, and of course, Gail Brechting, as we chatted about music inspired by travel and exploration. And I'll be continuing to host the Repertoire Happy Hour on the last Saturday of every month live on YouTube and on the Facebook group as well. So, so make sure that you go over and subscribe to your favourite platform for that sort of thing and and tune in on the last saturday and the podcast version then is released a week or two after that after that on may 14th uh, a special pre-season episode of finding drum corps is going to be released for all of you drum corps uh, aficionados out there and even if you're not a drum corps aficionado well that's kind of the fun of this podcast as i delve into the activity with an outsider's perspective uh, always with probably more questions than answers um Now, if you've listened to the first episode of Bandemic a number of weeks ago, you're probably wondering what happened to the rest of the season. Um, Well, it is coming. Uh, And from May 21st and each week for three weeks, I'll be releasing episodes two, three and four to finish up this reflection on the past 12 months in our banding community. If you haven't already heard episode one, it's right here in this podcast feed. Now, I'm really proud of this um, this documentary, this mini documentary, so I hope you enjoy it too. Now, I've already mentioned a pre-season episode of Finding Drum Corps, and I'm happy to say that I'll be launching season two this June 23rd, and it's going to run for eight weeks right up until the DCI Celebration Tour finale in Indianapolis, where, as it stands, I actually plan to be and host a live in-person episode on Saturday, August 14th. This season, we're going to be taking a deep dive into some of the cores, the open class, Colour Guard and the Instep Diversity Programme, as well as looking ahead to 2022 and the future of Drum Corps after this pandemic. So that's the plan for the summer for the podcasts. All of the shows will be available here on this feed and in a few weeks I'll also be making them available separately, each in their own feeds, so you can consume and save the shows in, in any way that suits you. If you'd like to support the shows, heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review is a great way to do so. And of course, you can always work with me and with the Kaleidoscope Adventures team on planning your next band tour, whether that's within the USA or internationally. Most importantly though, please just keep on enjoying the shows. The Global Bandroom podcast itself will be back on Friday, September 3rd for Season 3. So, let's head over to this conversation with Tim Rainish to finish up season two of the Global Band Room podcast. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by today's guest. I had the opportunity to meet Tim Rainish for the first time uh, back in 2019 when he when he visited Ireland, but it certainly wasn't his first time to, to visit Ireland. Um, and um, really, when, when I introduce guests on the podcast before I, I talk about you know well-known guests and well-regarded guests but I think it's fair to say that that Tim Rainish is is really a legend and I'm absolutely uh, fascinated and delighted to be talking to him today Tim how are you I'm well I don't think I'm a legend not quite yet but thank you no a few a few more years to go before that Tim yeah <laughs> well how was the last year how's the last year been, been for you Tim it's been great. 
<laughs> you're I, enjoying lockdown. Yeah, it, I, it's terrible because I mean, we feel so guilty because we're in a lovely house. Look out, we have trees and you know, a garden, got a garden to sit in, um, lots of books, lots of music, and no traveling. It's very peaceful. So I should have got a lot of work done. I've done a few things. I've been lecturing a little in Arizona. And uh, I quite enjoyed it. So I've been going to their classes week after week and started a new class on Facebook for wind ensemble this thing. And, uh, and I write a lot of rude letters to the government. And, uh, <laughs> but it's been good. It's, we like it. So, so this might be the, the start of your political career then? It might be the start of retirement. <laughs> uh, so how have you how have you found um uh, zoom then uh, like you're, you're teaching in in arizona right now at the moment um if, if if zoom had have existed back in uh back in the 70s and 80s do you think that you it's something that you would have used oh preferably not i i like being there um and i like traveling but um and it's terrible for teaching. I, I work with my grandchildren every day on their practice, and that's terrible. But it's good to see them every day. And, of course, uh, yeah. It's good to be in contact with people through Zoom. I like on that point of view. But uh, it doesn't replace traveling and seeing people and meeting people. To look at your, your, your biography and all of the uh, wind bands and orchestras that you've conducted over the years, you have traveled the world. So for a year with no travel, I mean, you say that you've enjoyed the break, but do you intend to, to get back to travel at all? Or uh, I think so. Um, we've just heard today that I, my last commission was a cello concerto, which my uh, eldest grandson is studying. And we're due to play that on Saturday in Spain, but of course we're not going. But it's been uh, put off now until October. So we're looking at October for that. So that'll be great. The Global Band Room is just over one year old this month. Both the community and the podcast have been a direct result of live music being put on hold. In that year, we've tried to keep people connected, informed and motivated to keep performing and enjoying music. Well, there's a real sense of hope and optimism as the world starts to tentatively open back up. Now's the time to start making some of those connections real again. The Global Band Room is proud to be supported by the team at Kaleidoscope Adventures to make this a reality. The Kaleidoscope Adventures team in Florida is made up of not only some of the best travel industry people, but also music educators just like you who understand the unique needs of performing ensembles of every size, shape and ability. I'm proud to be part of this team, and if you would like to support the podcasts, you can do so by connecting with me to talk about your next tour, whether that's domestically within the US or an international trip as the world starts to reopen. The Global Band Room continues to connect musicians around the world. When you're ready to take the next step, contact us at Kaleidoscope Adventures. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about um, about your history with Wind Band because um, it's 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 absolutely fascinating. And um, you you grew grew up as as a horn player, uh, and your your early career is as a professional horn player, playing with our orchestras and conducting orchestras. Um, in your very early years, as a as a child growing up, was band, wind band, brass band, was that part of your your no, your your? No, certainly not. <laughs> no idea. I I put on a wind band concert in nineteen fifty eight to raise money for a tour we were doing in Germany with a chamber orchestra. And um, we were on the, the backs in, uh, I think, King's College, Cambridge. It was a beautiful day. I insured against rain, and it didn't rain at all. So we made no money, whatever. But we played a lot of marches and that kind of thing. And that was my only... Um, connection with band 
and that was fun. And I didn't, it wasn't a serious thing. I had a lot of friends playing it in the band who were string players. They were just holding instruments, and it, but it looked terrific. <laughs> and yeah. was there a band tradition at all there in, locally? Or just something that you hadn't been no, part of? No, I don't think so. Um, no. Oh, no, I don't think so. We moved to Minehead. I was teaching in Minehead after playing professionally for a bit. And I think there was a Boy Scouts band in Dunster. And I think we met up to do Christmas carols once. And I did play, I think, euphonium parts on a horn at Christmas time in a in a um, Salvation Army band over in East Anglia. But no, oh, and I, gosh, it all comes back. I did conduct a couple of pieces in a band in Leicester, but I, I never got involved, partially because I didn't know anything about it, um, and partially because that the sound world didn't attract me at all. That map mm. of of uh, brass instruments were saying, you know, cornets, nine cornets. I like to hear what the eighth and seventh cornet is playing, and no idea because it's all mixed in. And there's such a wonderful melange of sound. It always sounds in tune, and uh, it, it didn't interest me. <laughs> anyway, the orchestra, <laughs> the orchestra and the opera was my thing. Mm-hmm. And and so you you started your career as a professional horn player, Tim. Um, was that something that you thought you would do for 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 your entire career at that stage? Did was conducting on the horizon even in those early oh, days? I hated conductors. <laughs> All horn players hate conductors because they sit there. Um, you've got to be pretty intelligent to be a horn player. So we of course. You. It is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra, not. But um, I used to sit there thinking, well, no, um, what is this guy doing? It had no interest in conducting at all. So what changed? Well, I left, I was in Sadler's Wells Opera uh, for a couple of years. And I left to go teaching in the West Country because we couldn't afford a house in London. And so I started conducting, I formed an orchestra, started conducting it, and realized very quickly that I was terrible. So I went to Canford to study with George Hurst, and I learned a lot. And I didn't really think of conducting as a a profession. I had no interest, but it was a useful tool as a schoolmaster. So um, I went back to Canford a couple of times. And then I left the city of Birmingham after four years and and went to, um, I left teaching after four years and went to the city of Birmingham. And there I began putting on little uh, brass consort concerts, uh, six piece and eight piece, played a lot of uh, Gabrielli and that kind of thing and contemporary stuff, and uh, began doing contemporary music for brass and wind and a couple of strings, and that I quite enjoyed. So gradually I began more interested in conducting, went back to Canford and caught the bug. And so I left the CBSO and uh, went back into teaching for a little, and by then I was conducting oh, a lot of orchestra work, uh, contemporary stuff. And then, do you remember that? Well, you probably don't. Um, <laughs> the, the, we used to have a program in um, BBC at five o'clock called, called Homeward Bound. And uh, it used to be uh, an hour of uh, quite fast moving an hour of little pieces by light music composers. And I began conducting those and conducting concerts at the Albert Hall on a Sunday night, Tchaikovsky night, and that kind of thing. And it was all growing a bit and it was quite fun. 
So you say you caught the bug, Tim. What was it? Um, what was it about conducting that that at that point then was 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 so attractive to you? Ah, uh, <laughs> I I don't know. It, it was, seemed to be easier at the time than playing the horning. Easier than uh, the horning. A lot easier than teaching. Um, <laughs> And I was a fraud. I didn't know anything about it, really. I went on a couple of courses. Uh, very exciting course in Italy, which is still running at the Siena Academia Chigiana. Uh That was a great course with Franco Ferrara. And a completely transforming course in Holland which I think they've stopped doing now at Hilversum. Um, and that, I learned a lot, and that was a lot of fun. And very competitive. But it was- so a lot of modern compo- a lot of modern conductors, Tim, um, have gone through um, three and four year degrees, or at, at the very least, maybe sort of a master's degree or a doctor's in conducting but you kind of came from a school um, and many conductors um, certainly in Ireland and the UK have gone through similar sort of processes where their background is predominantly performance or maybe music education and then they were part of these some of them as you say are legendary short courses in various different schools around Europe like Canford obviously being a very famous one as well that you were mentioning there Um, do you think there's do you think there's um still value in these short courses um and and is it something that you would like to see continue? Oh yes. Uh because you meet a lot of other conductors who are also highly trained musicians of some sort. I mean Canford for instance there's always a squad from the Royal Marines sometimes from the Air Force and the Army. And so you're meeting 30 40 year olds who are highly trained musicians and are just getting interested in conducting. Uh, And in a way, I think it frees you up. I think if you've been studying on a course at a conservatoire, you get into sort of fixed ways of doing it. Um, And on the other hand, of course, conductors who come in from the profession think we, we think we can do it. And we don't really think about the technical side. And there is a technique to be studied and then forgotten. Well, so I think it was, was it 1975, I think, that you um, began then with the Royal Northern College of Music, Tim. And um, tell me about that move to RNCM. And um, fairly shortly after you moved there, you became the head of uh, wind and percussion there as well. Well, I did a seminar in Liverpool with Charles Groves. Um, and he, he always reckoned you couldn't teach conducting. So he did nothing. He just sat there. And we had the orchestra for two weeks uh, and a schedule of works to work, perform, work, perform. And uh, it was quite a distinguished group. They all had much bigger careers than I had as a conductor. The last concert was Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, which, as you know, takes about an hour to play. I had two rehearsals of about 40 minutes. But my daughter had just been born the weekend before, and so I felt very creative and superb. And I knew I was going to get that as the, the big piece. And uh, that that was great. I mean, I'm just wallowing in that. And uh, uh, how they played it, so well, I don't know, because I must have been terrible still. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, ideally, every gesture should have a musical a meaning, but of course, it doesn't. And a lot of the time, we're just beating time, and that's terrible. So then you try and free it up, and that's almost more terrible because. Nobody knows what you're doing. But as long as it means something to the players and the audience, as long as you've got a a message about the music um, and you're 
putting it through your gestures, then it begins to make sense, I think. <laughs> it does and there's that famous um there's that famous video of Bernstein conducting with just his facial expressions that that I often uh, find absolutely fascinating that just that that look and that that you know that side glance and that smile meant something to the to the performers it is just a fascinating uh a video uh, to to watch no no hand movement whatsoever well yeah of course there's a very famous um, video of Bernstein conducting Enigma, and he was in tears with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and uh, they asked for a clear beat, but he, he he just couldn't do it because you know he was just so moved and he was moving just like this, and the orchestra were getting more and more bolshy about it, and it was really horrible to see. Um, <laughs> But then he was bringing to the table all that experience. Uh, mm. And I think that is something which is very important to experience as much music as you can, as many conductors as you can. And uh, all I did in, as at Manchester was just give conductors a chance to conduct the groups. And, mm. and I remember a Japanese conductor, Satyo Fujioka, and it was my last rehearsal before a concert with the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. So I said, Satch, why don't you just conduct the first movement, see how it goes? And he was so good. I said, well, Satch, you'd better do the second movement. So he did the second movement, and then he did the third and the fourth. He did the whole piece. I needed that rehearsal in my final rehearsal. And Satya, of course, they loved because he was a very exciting, crazy Japanese conductor. Um, but for him, it was very important to have that experience behind him. And for me, not so important, I suppose. So when you started with the uh, School of Wind and Percussion then in RNCM, Tim, was there a wind band culture at that stage? Um, or was that something that you um, had, to, had to build? No. Trevor Y was in charge of the flutes, um, and he 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 used to be a, a Royal Marine. He hated the Marines, and he tried every possible way of getting out. In the end, he behaved so badly that they sacked him. Um, so then he became a great flute teacher and flute player. Came to Manchester after uh, Geoffrey Gilbert, and he had. He began the wind band there. He he didn't like it very much. He didn't like band music, and he didn't like the, the players. It was all the young players. Uh, but it was there. It was uh, a culture was there, and they used to play, you know, whole Vaughan Williams and marches, and uh, so there was something to build on. Uh, Philip Jones, my predecessor, trumpet bass said, uh, Tim, whatever you do, make sure they're all playing a lot. Because um, if you're a brass player, you play a piece of Gabrielli quite easy. Then it, it's not easy once you get onto the stage and you're in one corner and another group in another corner and everybody's listening and those easy notes you suddenly become a little bit nervous. So the pressure of performance is terribly important. So right from the start, I began putting on concerts with wind ensemble, Janacek, Messiaen, uh, Berg, Schoenberg, all those sort of people. No, no band music. And then 1981 was a big... Uh, conference, the city, the CBDNA, College Band Directors National Association, decided to come to Manchester for their first world conference. And I was amazed hearing these bands playing extraordinary music, virtuoso music, at a very high level. And so from then onwards, last 40 years, I've been totally obsessed with 
the wind band and its repertoire. And it strikes me that both that uh, visit of the CBDNA and then your study in 1982 with the Churchill uh, Traveling Fellowship, your yeah. study on the repertoire of American symphonic wind band, that seemed to be a, a real breakthrough um, for you. And um, from that moment onwards, you seem to be very passionate about your commissioning of new works, uh, your commissioning of British and even Irish composers to write for wind band as a very serious medium. Tell me a little bit about that study and its impact on you at the time, Tim. Well, I I went to five centers. I, I started off in Michigan, um, where there was a conference, an education conference. And I was just amazed by you know the, the wealth of expertise bell ringers, choirs, ensembles of all sorts. Um, very exciting. Teachers from all over Michigan coming in, professionals coming in and lecturing. And then I went down to Ohio. I saw a guy called Craig Kirchhoff. He had an honors band, so he had 100 kids. He was a little man. And I learned a lot about control and contact. He would just stand there. And the band would get quieter and quieter. And then he'd start rehearsing from nothing. Uh, actually, amazing control. Then I went to the West and stayed with David Whitwell. Now, David is a, an extraordinary scholar. He'd researched so much wind band music. I was sleeping on the floor in his library, surrounded by hundreds, literally hundreds of score photostats of music from all the libraries in Europe. And that was exciting. He made me conduct all his bands, conducting music I'd never heard of in my life. Um, and then I went, the really transforming experience was at Northwestern, where I met Clark Rondell. I didn't know it at the time, but he was there. Um, and I had the run of their library for recording music and photographing scores. And I was working with John Painter, the great John Painter. So this was very exciting. I came back with this load of scores and records, but a lot of it not, for me, very attractive. Um, I was into the, the wind ensemble, Fred Fennell at Eastman had founded the wind ensemble concept in the 50s with one player to a part. And that's what I liked. As I said with the, the brass band, I want to know what the seventh call is doing. With the wind ensemble, you can hear exactly what the colors are. And I like coming away from a wind concert, having heard what the oboe plays and the bassoon players and the third and fourth horns and the second and third sound is how they all play and how they sound. And I started commissioning composers who knew nothing about wind bands, but just used it as an orchestra without strings. And in a way, that's what my whole repertoire that I've created is about. There's some band features and some tiny wind ensemble, but on the whole, it's the 40-piece wind ensemble uh, based on the Fred Fennell um, kind of concept that attracted me. And and would you differentiate then uh, wind band, uh, sorry, wind ensemble, wind uh, concert band and wind orchestra? Because in at RNCM, um, am I right in saying that the ensemble was uh, entitled a wind orchestra? Uh, and was there a reason for that? Yes, because of that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a symphony orchestra without strings. Um, yeah, band music for me is always a little heavy, a little cluttered. Um, we commissioned a couple of works from Derek Bourgeois, who's had a big career in the brass band world, of course. And he's, on the whole, just scored as if for band, but without those extra brass instruments. So it, it's a very thick, heavy kind of sound. 
Some composers can bring that off beautifully. Ken Hesketh scores very thickly, and I'm always complaining. He says, well, that's the sound he wants. But when you're doing it, you find that the second and third flute, second and third clarinet, second oboe, get wonderful melodic lines and, and uh, interesting parts. So I think that's important. I love that. And you say you commissioned many orchestral uh, composers in, um, o- over the years. Have you found that orchestral composers have ever struggled to bring the sound um, that you're looking for to life with a wind band? Or is it just that they bring something different? No, that that's right. I've never thought about that. No, I mean, they, they, they just write and, and I do it. Um, I never dictate or very rarely ever say, well, can you try this? Can you do this? Um, they sometimes in the past used to have difficulty with saxophones. Um, and that is a problem, I think. Using the saxophones creatively and not getting this wodge of sound in the middle of the orchestra, saxophones and horns are quite similar and often sit together. Um, so differentiating between the instruments is sometimes a problem. But no, everybody everybody just writes and it, it's wonderful. And I there, there's another guy who's done a lot of um, commissioning, Robert Boudreau, who's actually written, uh, had one piece from Ireland by uh, Zook. Zook wrote a, a piece um, called Scherzo, which is wonderful. It's such fun. It's written for four flutes, four clarinets, four bassoons, four oboes, uh, four trumpets, four trombones, uh, tuba, and percussion. Um, no saxophones, and so nobody plays his music. Hardly ever, <laughs> if any of it played. They don't on the whole play much of my music because I'm in three, 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 uh, four saxophones, three, four horns, orchestral brass. And they like to have uh, far bigger. Um, well, it's not, it's not bigger so much as just having a, a, a thicker sound. With, and let be a little bit frank about my colleagues in the States. The oboe and bassoon culture are not strong because first term of the year, first semester, they're all into marching band. So the oboes and bassoons, instead of doing something useful like practicing GA and making a read, they're given cymbals and drums. And so they're marching. Everybody's marching. So they come back at Christmas time, and the oboes and bassoons have done no playing at all, except on percussion. And so right. the, the, they're not so advanced as the flutes and Um And so they, on the whole, like to have music. Well, in, in, in England, I, I don't know anything much about it, but the, the army bands tend to score music which is soldier-proof. So if you don't have any oboes at all, or some very bad oboes, um, they're covered up because everybody's doubling. And uh, then you're back to the brass band concept. So uh, I guess I, I, I've been a revolutionary. I, I want to hear these individual um, so that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we certainly, uh, as speaking as a military musician for twelve years, uh, we certainly like covering as much as we possibly can. <laughs> well, yeah, and of course, when you're out marching in the rain, you don't want to get the wooden instruments too wet. But, yeah, uh, and the ob- the oboists they're complaining about putting their double reeds into the uh, bad weather as well. So. Yes. So tell me about, um, so Orient CM Wind Orchestra is established, it starts commissioning new works, 
And in the early 80s, um, you and some other uh, visionaries, let's say, um, decide to start an organization to celebrate wind band repertoire and wind band conducting and and wind band organizations uh, called WASBI, World Association of Symphonic Bands and Ensembles, for anyone that hasn't heard of it before. Tell me a little bit about the um, about the initial sort of conversations around that, and what the need was for an organisation that had a worldwide reach that was going to advocate for wind band. Well, the whole conference was set up by Frank Battisti, and Frank had done quite a bit of travelling uh, and contacting other cultures, South American, European cultures, and he had this vision of bringing wind bands together and wind band composers from all over the world. So he, when he was president of CBDNA, he had persuaded them to hold this conference, which was in Manchester. And so everything was ready. And there were a group of, um, there was a guy from Israel, uh, several guys from Europe, and, uh, one or two from Japan, and they were already, they'd already been in discussing, discussions over, I think, creating an ensemble uh, organization. And so I think he did something which was not so wise. To get the Europeans involved, it was handed over to Europe and European um, band directors to run uh, for the first two or four, uh, two or, or four years. We work in two-year cycles. Every two years, we elect a new president and a new committee. Um, now, the, the wind band culture in America was much stronger than in Europe. In Europe, it's all based on the, the town music uh, bands playing for uh, services, for processions, and music is taught through the band, whereas in America it's taught in the schools. So you go into school and you do five days a week, you've got bands through which you learn your instruments. So the cultures are, are quite different. And then, of course, in America, everybody then has just band burnout, or they go to university and study band and band conducting. So there is a culture there already, and they had commissioned a lot of music from quite distinguished composers. Uh, in Europe, we didn't have that culture. And so in a way, I think, once we got a little lost, uh, and the, the, the growth in the last 40 years has not been as strong as I hoped it might be. But it's there. It, it, it's, you know, the contacts were made, and we, we had, at one stage, well over 1,000 members all over the world. Very valuable contacts. And certainly it, it, it really has um, been at the forefront of a lot of commissioning uh, as well. Um, it may may not be, as you mentioned, uh, sort of growing and getting as many of the bands around the world to, to be part of its organization, but it really has pushed that idea of commissioning um, uh, of composers. You know, you speak about uh, town bands and, and, and sort of they have a very specific function within their areas and their localities um maybe it's to play uh local festivals maybe it's to play at uh, sporting events and, and yep. uh, processionals as you say uh, and so commissioning isn't something that a lot of bands really think about and maybe that it's out of their reach a lot of the time oh, tell me do you think that it is something that most but more bands should start considering uh, to do uh, commissioning local composers commissioning uh, you know uh, composers f- uh, that might not be known for wind band music but maybe giving them an opportunity to to write something for their band or is it something that maybe uh, town bands that's not really something that they should really need to consider well 
I'm I'm just about to um, conduct a concerto by a friend of mine, Louis Alacon. He's got a band, so it's a little incestuous. He's got a band in the hills above Valencia. And we're going to do this cello concerto. It should be this Saturday, but it's going to have to be in October now. Uh, and they have, well, I think Spain, Spain is a little special because they have a tradition of very high level contesting. And uh, every year they have a big contest in Valencia. They commission works for each group to have to do it a, a compulsory piece. And it, I think it's a matter of pride that the band also commission works and they bring them in. And I, the band I work with there, Lewis's band, does have a tradition of concert giving. Every two or three months, they put on a concert, have an audience of about 700 or so, um, with contemporary works from everywhere, England, America, but also Spain. So Spain, there was a big tradition of Spanish composers. In the rest of Europe, it's mainly the big military bands, like the Garde Republicaine in Paris, or the um, Guide in Brussels. These are bands of 110, 120 players. And it, it fascinates me in their libraries. They must have so much great music, um, big, big pieces. And I've been trying to get some of that repertoire uh, played uh, around the world. Um, Rodrigo, who everybody knows for his uh, uh, piece for Wind Ensemble, he wrote an incredible piece called Père la Fleur de Cléry Blau, great title. Um, which he wrote for orchestra. Then he scored for the band, I think, in um, in Brussels. It might have been Paris. And it's a wonderful, romantic, big tone poem, which people don't know. So there is a repertoire at every kind of level. Um, I uh, the, the, the Spanish bands commission a lot of... Uh, uh, marches for coming into the bullring. They're quite fun. Most of them are a little bit, they conform to the same kind of pattern, like a bad Susan march. But at their best, um, they're very exciting, very ingenious, lots of use of. And, and because Spain had, grows reeds uh, in, in all that swamp, and the reed making there is great, so the oboes and bassoons are fantastic. And um, it's great that these different sorts of. What is interesting now, there are more and more bands in South America and the Far East who are uh, getting interested in trying to create better repertoire. Uh, Japan has a great culture of band playing, but it's modeled on America. Um, they have band every day in school, compulsory, very highly disciplined. And the, the composers there base their music on uh, really Hollywood or virtually anything and uh, American stuff. So it's a little bit boring, but there are one or two who are doing better work. Uh, yeah, they commission a lot, and Spain commissions a lot. It would be good if everybody did. There's an Australian composer, Jody Blackshaw, um, oh, yeah. working on a project um, for the last number of years called Colourful Music, um, yeah. which is about diversity in programming. And I found it fascinating. And, and prior to talking to Jody, I, I thought that I was quite good with uh, diverse programs, but really... Mm what she has taught me and, and many others is that we're just not digging deep enough. It strikes me, Tim, that you've actually been doing that for years. You've been digging deep and where it didn't exist, you were just asking for new music to be written from these composers. And I, you know, 
uh, Fergal Carroll here in Ireland has has been commissioned by you and has done some great work. And and now we have you know music by an Irish composer being played across the US, whereas that probably wasn't happening too much prior to that. It strikes me that you've actually been a champion of diverse programming and commissioning for for many, many years. Has it been something that you have set out to do, Tim, uh, to to be diverse like that, you know, in a very, very 2021 sort of sense of the word? Um, Or is it just something that has, you know, been a natural flow of your work? Yeah, it's something that that intrigues me that... um... I'm, you know, our American colleagues will record, I mean, they used to record a lot of Alfred Reed. Every concert had Alfred Reed and a lot of recordings. But there's a guy called Julian Wirt who wrote the most marvelous impressionistic piece called Autumn War. And he's written something like six works for, for wind band. Nobody plays them at all. Nobody plays Autumn War. Which is one of my favorite pieces. Uh, he's a, a, an Afro-American. Um, and there are several composers like that who really bring a lot of different ideas. Uh, South American composers who are emerging. But uh, I think Jody has done a great job on that. Uh, and I think on, I, it's the band business. I mean, if, if you're a conductor, say in my position and you're in a university there, you get to conduct a lot of music around the country in honors bands. You don't know how good or bad that's going to be. So you're always going to play safe and choose music which you know will sound good. Probably Philip Spark. I mean, Philip Spark always sounds great. Yeah. And so you're always safe with that. Uh, rather than go for Say Adam Gore, because Adam Gore writes quirky music of five bar phrases, seven bar phrases. Um, you know, and it, it's difficult. I once did a an honors band thing in Tennessee. I did all three bands, one work in each, a work by Adam. And every work broke down in performance because they don't like conducting, uh, counting five bars and, and then counting you know, a three-eight in the middle of a two-four. Uh, and I did a bad job selling it to them. So every piece had to stop <laughs> and go back. So uh, I, I like the bands to be challenged a little, and the audience uh, challenged a little intellectually. But on the whole, I want all my music that I choose to be emotional. Um, and I think all the composers I've gone for have written music with a story, like, uh, I mean, Fergus Carroll's music always had a strong program. Um, so I think that's important. Say there was a time in Wadsby when they, they were proposing that every concert should end with a march. So I propose that every concert should end or should have in it uh, a hard-edged contemporary music. And then I withdrew that as a silly proposition, thinking that the March people would draw there. But they didn't. They stuck to it. Uh, (laughs) There are all these conflicting things in politics and bands. So that's a very military band sort of idea, isn't it? You finish the concert with a with a march so that everyone can clap along at the end of the uh, at the concert. That's right. That's right. Um, tell me, do you believe that there is a different sound um, culturally around the world? So, um, you know, people talk about like that Spanish sound in a band, or you know that Irish sound or, you know, that, that American sound. Do you think that's true, Tim, or is, do we give that too much weight? I think it's probably true, but I can never hear it. I'm not very sensitive. <laughs> not sensitive to sound. <laughs> that, make, that makes me feel a lot better, Tim. <laughs> I think it depends on the conductor, what kind of sound he wants. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Probably true. 
tell me, uh, Tim, you've you've done a lot of recording um, over over the years, and and you recorded a lot with with American university bands uh, too. Um, is there any recordings of yours that particularly stand out that were were quite fun to do, maybe, or that you're very particularly proud of the 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 final the final piece? Well, I'm very proud of all the um, the recordings of the RNCM. Um, I hadn't realized what an impact they were having in America. I've got students saying, wow, that's the go-to recording to listen to, Paul Williams, um, you know, the French disc, the German disc, and Paul Williams holds. Um, the band we had in the 90s, um, going up to 2000, they were just so good at knowing what kind of interpretation I was going to have and how I wanted it played, that we didn't hardly rehearse anything. They came in, played, and we in a couple of weeks we would record. We tended to give concerts of pieces we were going to record, but I gave them... This is something that I think we all have to try and do to give our players the freedom to express themselves. So if you have a, a tune, say in the whole first suite, uh, you can play it. I once had a query, how many euphoniums did I use? Because it sounded different every time the euphonium player came. It was the same guy, but he was free to phrase slightly differently, change the dynamics. Um, and I think it's very important to find music for our band's concerts, which is musical. This is why I, I love to do music by Guy Wolfenden, because mm -hmm. Guy had this knack of writing musical ideas. So you can talk about balance and, and, and phrasing and dynamics and on not just ensemble. And I think uh, a lot of con conducting training is just about ensemble, give a clear beat. Strange thing, um, the, there's a horn player in America in the, who was in Chicago, and she was asked, what's the most important thing from a conductor she wants? And she had a clear beat. Now, I can remember going to Chicago to hear them rehearse with Frankfurt. And the leader asked him for a clear beat. He was playing some of a big romantic symphony they didn't know. And he said, no. Well, like Bernstein the other day. Uh, he didn't want to give a clear beat. He just wanted them to feel it together and just breathe together and play. It's a bit dangerous because it's never, never together. Um, I can remember conducting La Boheme, which starts, ba -ba 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 -ba. and one of my colleagues in Manchester said that Elgar Harris comes in and he goes, ba -ba -ba. so two bars for nothing. Well, it's always together if you do that. But I like coming in, lights go down, and you look at them and you, but there's a moment when you catch them and it's very exciting. There's an energy to that, yeah. Yeah, it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. This is why I've never had much of a career doing all this. It's too dangerous. <laughs> Salty, I came to, to Manchester working with the orchestra towards the end of his life, and he used to give a, a, a beat for nothing, so just to make sure it was safe. And most military conductors give at least two beats for nothing every time. Quite right, too. Well, I do when I'm working with the military. <laughs> That's true. Um, tell me, Tim, um, your website has become um, one of the go-to places for students and conductors around the world. Um, your program notes uh, have been used and reused probably with permission and many without permission <laughs> in many programs and concerts everywhere around the world. Um, tell me about the, the, the web, the website and, and, and Machinus music as well, Tim, you, you've been, you've been prolific with, 
how you write about music and and publishing articles on the website over the years? Well, I enjoy pontificating. <laughs> uh, I, I do miss being in a university situation. Um, I used to love uh, being at Manchester. And uh, I love at the moment being, well, I've finished, finished on duty, being in the University of uh, Arizona. Just such fun being with the students and giving them ideas to follow up. Um, so I guess it's just being pompous and uh, being a pompous pundit, uh, like the sound of my own voice. And I feel a little guilty. You know, I try and I can remember a German conductor writing and saying, you know, one man's food is another man's poison. Uh, because I've been laying down the law and you know, why don't we say this? Why don't we say that? But I, I think just giving people ideas on possible repertoire, which they maybe don't know about. Because it's such a huge repertoire. The last 40 years, I mean, the exponential growth of pieces which are published, and a lot of music that's not published, which should be published, um, which people just don't know about necessarily. Tim, last question for you um, before before we finish up. Um, you know, I think today, probably less so than, than, than maybe 20 or 30 years ago, or certainly 40 years ago, when, when a lot of this movement started with you and, and, and others, uh, wind band is taken more seriously in 2021 than it may have been at the time. Sure. Uh, but there's still that little bit of a debate, you know, and there's, we, we, we have to sort of advocate for ourselves still. Uh, and in many parts of the world, the wind band is definitely still the, the second um, relative to the, to the orchestra. If you had to select a single piece of music in the wind band repertoire to demonstrate the importance of this ensemble type, is there a piece that you could pick? Probably probably the Richard Rodney Bennett morning music, which is very colourful, has a strong story, which is not so important, but um, and it has marvellous changes of mood. Um, but I, I, I love Richard Roddy Bennett's music. It's, it's just, and it's a, a kind of mix of jazz and serial music. And I mean, this is the thing, of course. I mean, 1910, it, it's now 110 years since that serial music started. And most uh, wind band music hasn't caught up with that yet. There's no reason why it shouldn't be involved in what we're doing. Um, so, oh, long way to go. <laughs> well, Tim, you you are you have done and continue to do uh, incredible work for for wind bands and. Um, it was a pleasure having you here in Ireland last year, and I must say. Every single musician from uh, from the young musicians with less experience to the musicians that have played professionally for years all felt so welcome and so comfortable under your baton over that weekend. And so thank you for that and thank you for everything that you've done. Had a wonderful weekend. I'm disappointed because David was talking about doing it again and what's happened? Well, we, we'll certainly get the band back together, Tim, if we can get you here. How about that? That'll be good. I'll be there. Tim, thanks so much for agreeing to do this interview today. I really appreciate it. Keith, thank you. Sorry to be so incoherent. (laughs) Not at all, Tim. Not at all. See you in Chicago. See you in Chicago. You owe me a pint. (laughs) Anytime. Anytime, Tim. And that is it for season two of the Global Bandroom podcast. Um... As I mentioned earlier on, you'll have plenty of shows throughout the keep throughout the summer to keep the feed ticking over. Um, coming up very soon, I've been the guest on the Band Room podcast with Dylan Rook Maddox and Kate Nishimura, uh, so you'll be able to hear a little bit about me and my background um, on that podcast. So I'll make sure to share that on all of the social media platforms when when it comes up. If you're not already f- following us on social media, we're at Global Band Room on Instagram, Twitter 
and uh, Facebook as well. And on Facebook, join the Global Bandroom community group. It's a fantastic place for finding fellow musicians and bands people from around the world, all taking part maybe in virtual projects that you might be able to get involved in too. Um, and if you'd like to find out more about the podcasts, you can do so over at globalbandroom.com where you'll find show notes for Finding Trumcore, Bandemic, Global Bandroom, Repertoire Happy Hour, and anything else that we're, that we're working on now as well. So that's globalbandroom.com. Thank you so much for all of your support over the last year. We've, we've had a few iterations of this show since we started from the, the time when I was recording on a, on a phone over Skype um, to buying a, a microphone and, and maybe trying to increase the professionalism. Hopefully season three, when we launch it in September, will be, will be even better. Uh, but thank you for your support and for continuing to download and give me all this uh, great feedback as well. Have a great summer. Enjoy the shows. We'll see you in September. Bye-bye.